Okay, so um, we are looking at um, Mark's Gospel, and the, uh, the passage we're looking at today is, it's one of those, isn't it, that makes it into virtually every children's Bible, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. You can see the pictures, can't you? you know, the ha happy families, lots of colour, sat there enjoying a picnic together, and all the better because it's free. Okay, free food, who, who wouldn't enjoy that? Okay, there's more to this story than that. Interestingly, this is the, outside of the resurrection, this is the only one of Jesus' miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Okay, think about that. They've got, they've got the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all writing from their different perspectives. They have got this wealth of material on the life of Jesus to communicate to people to work with, to decide, to look at this and go, okay, what am I going to keep and what am I going to cut? And this is the only miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, where all four of them decided this one has got to stay. Okay, why? What is it about this event that made all four of them go, okay, they, the people, you, me, whoever reads this, you need to hear this one, all four of them. Well, I think it, you know, it has explanatory power. It has explanatory power. Okay, look at verses 51 and 52. Jesus has just walked on water, okay, which you've got to admit, in terms of dramatic effect, okay, rivals feeding 5,000 people. And then Mark says, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Meaning, if they had understood about the loaves, if they had taken in what the message of feeding the 5,000 was, what that had told them, they would not have been astounded by the fact that Jesus could walk on water. Okay, so what does this event, feeding the 5,000, tell us about Jesus, and why does it matter for you? So that all of the Gospels say, hey, you've got to hear this. You've got to understand it and take it in. Okay, first point then, the presence of the king. Okay, the presence of the king. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus had sent his disciples out to teach and to heal and to cast out demons, and they come back and they're full of it, aren't they? They just, they just need to tell Jesus about it. And Jesus says, verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Okay, and Mark tells us why that was Jesus' response. Okay, there are so many people coming and going around Jesus that verse 31, they had no leisure even to eat. Okay, that's remarkable, isn't it? I'll tell you why I think it's remarkable. It's remarkable because these were young guys. These were young men. They were all young men, these disciples. They're the same kind of age as the guys in our student group or our young adult groups. And I've never known them pass up the chance to eat. Okay, if they... And this is true, isn't it, guys? It, I mean, have you ever known a young guy go, do you know what? No, I'll, I, I don't need to eat right now. No, I can, I can skip that one by. Okay, something has got to be going on. Okay, for them to be off their food. It's got to be busy. Okay, think about that. There is a busyness. There is a level of activity beyond which things cease to be healthy, isn't there? 
and you probably know this for your own life, you, you get so busy, you get, um, life becomes so full, you are so overstretched, that actually this ceases to be healthy for your body or for your soul. And as I say, maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you even feel like that at the moment. You're overstretched. You're like a rubber band that is about to break. And I would say to you, maybe Jesus is saying to you this morning, hey, it's time to take a rest. But of course they do that, or at least they go to do that. And they experience what any of you parents who think you are going to get a lion experience, dashed hopes. Okay, you know, the, the kids, you, know, you think you're going to get a lion? The kids leap on the bed, and the crowd gets there before them. And Jesus gets out of the boat. He sees this inconvenient crowd, and his reaction is what tells you why this event is so important. Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you could read that and read that as Jesus caring for the people like a shepherd cares for his sheep, okay, which he does, and that's true, except Mark is quoting almost verbatim from the, New, from the Old Testament. Okay, and standing on the threshold of the promised land, Israel's just about to enter the promised land, God tells Moses, Moses, you're not going to lead the people in. I'm going to take you away from them. You're going to die, and you're not going in. And Moses understands what that means, doesn't he? He gets that that will leave a leadership vacuum in Israel. So he prays to God that God would raise up a new leader, Numbers 27, a leader who should go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And in response to that prayer, of course, God raises up Joshua as leader. And then later on, he raises up David as the shepherd king. But that image of the flock with no shepherd Okay, it becomes a repeated metaphor in the Old Testament for absent leadership. And yet, if you think about it, this crowd in Jesus' day, they don't lack for leaders, do they? I mean, they have leaders coming out of their ears. What comes immediately before this passage? It's Herod's birthday banquet, isn't it? King Herod's birthday banquet, verse 21, a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So they have got this crowd, they've got civil leaders, they've got military leaders, and they have got religious leaders. They are not lacking for leaders. They've got loads of them. But it's self-serving leadership, isn't it? You know, civil leaders who ruled for their pockets to advance themselves, religious leaders who led out of a sense of their self-righteousness, leadership exemplified by Herod's self-indulgent banquet that ends with what? The murder of John the Baptist. Why? Because that leader, okay, he cared more about his self-image and how he looked to other people than about justice. 
You see, in the Old Testament, the metaphor of sheep without a shepherd, it's not, a just, it's not just about absent leadership. It becomes about weak and ineffective and self-indulgent leadership. And it culminates, this metaphor, in Exodus 34, where the Lord says to the leaders of the day, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And in response to that state of affairs in terms of leadership, God says, okay, where you have failed, I am gonna step in, I'm gonna come and be their shepherd. I'm going to seek them out. I'm going to save them. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to strengthen them. I'm going to heal them. I'm going to feed them. And so when Jesus steps onto the beach and he sees this crowd and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, Mark is telling us he's come. The shepherd has come. He's the new Moses come to lead the people out of slavery. He's the new Joshua, come to lead them into the promised land. He's the new David, come to rule over them with justice. He is the ultimate shepherd king. Now, of course, it's not just them who face a crisis of leadership, is it? You know, we do too. We also don't lack for leaders, whether that's in politics or social influences or in the church. There is no lack of people who want to shape your life, who want to shape my life. And we look to leaders for direction and for inspiration, as well as for protection and deliverance. And yet, just as with Herod, that leadership that we can find ourselves under can be tainted by self-interest and a nation or a church, or the followers of a social influencer can be used to feed the leader's desire for money or for power, or like Herod, just to look good. Okay, but Mark is telling us, hey listen, a very different leader has come. This is a king, unlike any other king. And in all of your looking for direction, in all of your looking for inspiration, in all of your looking for someone to follow, or someone to protect you, or someone to deliver you, and in all of our disappointments when our leaders, whether that's civil or religious, in all of our disappointments when they let us down, what we're really looking for, Mark says, is him, and he's come. And instead of using this crowd, Mark tells us that Jesus had compassion on them. Okay, but look, look at the form that compassion took. Because it's not, it's not just all fluffy, is it? Okay, verse 34. He had compassion on them and he began to teach them. So he feeds them. But first he feeds their hearts and their minds. Why? Because when you have been living under self-serving leadership, when you have been fed a diet of, hey, you need to follow me, and you need to pursue 
money or image or beauty or, or wealth or sex or success or whatever for you to thrive, then you need to be recalibrated. You need to hear the truth, the truth that opens your eyes and that changes your heart, the truth that enables you to see and to love and to want what is truly, really valuable. Okay, so the presence of the king. The king has stepped onto the beach. Second point, the power of the king. Okay, it's getting late, isn't it? Evening's coming. And so the disciples come to Jesus and tell him, verse 36, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. In other words, Jesus, we are in the middle of nowhere. The shops are shutting. Jesus, you need to be wrapping this up. And verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Imagine that. They are stood before 5,000 men, which probably means they were maybe up to, maybe even beyond 10,000 people there. You know, however many times, what's that? 50 times these, this, uh, our numbers here. And Jesus tells them, you do it. You feed them. Okay, if that was you, how would you respond? Okay, probably the way they responded. Verse 37, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Of course, you might earn a denarii a day. So this is, they're saying this would cost us two-thirds of a year's salary. Uh, Jesus, I think you just need to send them away. Okay, they need to look somewhere else. But Jesus doesn't, does he? Instead, he asks the disciples, verse 38, how many loaves do you have? And the extent of their resources to meet this human need in front of them is five small loaves and two fish. They are standing in front of a sea of human need. And what do they have to offer? Next to nothing. Again, maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you see the need in your own life for whatever that need might be. Maybe you see it in your neighbors' lives or your colleagues' lives. Maybe you see it in your extended family's lives. Maybe you see the need in our wider society, spiritual, physical, and emotional needs. And that need weighs upon you. Can you see it? And you feel it. But like these disciples, you feel totally in, impotent and inadequate to do anything about it. Why? Because you are. Because we are. And yet Jesus is standing there saying to them and to you and to me, you give them something to eat. Now, what they have is totally inadequate, isn't it? So just like Moses arranged Israel into groups in the wilderness, Jesus arranges this crowd in this desolate place into groups. In verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. 
and they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. Two banquets, two very different kings, Herod's banquet and Jesus's banquet. One is all about image and appearance. It's all about power and status and it ends in murder. Why? Because it's the banquet of death. But at this king's banquet, at King Jesus's banquet, a multitude, some of whom have probably not known what it is to experience being full for years, go home satisfied. I cannot eat another crumb. I am absolutely rammed. Because there is a satisfaction, there is a fullness that money and power and image and status can never give you. But Jesus can, because his banquet is the banquet of life. It's the banquet of fullness. It's the banquet where you will be satisfied. And Jesus does what these disciples and you and I can never do. He feeds them. And Mark tells us he took the bread and said a blessing. It's probably the blessing that any Jewish father would say, standing at the head of the table before mealtime, before the fun begins. Praise be to you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. And as Moses fed the people in the wilderness with manna, so Jesus feeds them with bread. Except if you think about it, it's not Moses who feeds them, is it? It's not Moses who provides them with manna. It's God. So Jesus here, he's not just filling Moses' shoes. He is standing in the place of God. He's the one who feeds them. And he does something that no human being can do. But he does it. Look how he does it. He takes what they have and he multiplies it. Interesting, isn't it? He doesn't bypass them doesn't bypass the disciples. He involves them in this when he gives it out. Verse 41, he gave them to the, to the disciples to set before the people. You see, if these men, or you and I, think that we have the resources, if we think that we are the answer to other people's problems, we're either going to end up deluded, thinking that we are the answer, thinking of ourselves more highly than we should, or we're going to end up in despair as we realise, man, I do not have the resources to do this. But Jesus is an expert in taking what little we have, the gifts that God has already given us and placed in our hands, and multiplying them. Because if you think about it, God has this habit of always taking the small and the insignificant, barren women, unloved women, overlooked sons, left-handed men, and he uses them to bless the world. So if you feel totally insufficient 
for the task that God has given you, if you see this situation that you are facing and you know I cannot do this and you feel insufficient and you feel inadequate, you are, but Jesus isn't. So give him what you have and let him use you where he has placed you to meet the needs around you. That's what he does with these disciples. And having been involved in that, what do you think they were thinking? What do you think they were feeling? Interestingly, we don't know, do we? Because it's almost as if Jesus doesn't give them the chance to think or to feel. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And we'll look at why in a minute. But that journey across the lake doesn't go so well, does it? Here are these guys, <clears throat> excuse me, they're already in need of a rest. And what do they get instead of a rest? They get a night in a boat on a lake where it must have felt like all of the elements were conspiring against them. And Jesus sees them in the early light of dawn, okay, which tells you how little, how little progress had actually made away from the, the shore. In verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Okay, now, okay, just like them, you can know what it is to feel overstretched. And either you recognize your need for a rest, or you should recognize your need for a rest. And like them, you can feel impotent in the face of the needs of others. But also like them, you probably also know what it is like to be in this boat. Okay, you are trying to do the right thing. Maybe if you're here and you're a Christian, you're trying to obey Jesus. He's told them to go across the lake. They're doing that in obedience to him. And maybe you're trying, you are trying to obey. You are trying to live faithfully as a Christian, whether that's in, at home or in the workplace or just in your own life. Like them, you are trying to do what you have been told to do. And it feels like it is just not working. Worse than that, it can feel like everything and everyone is conspiring against you and it feels like you are making zero headway. The wind is against you. Well, Jesus sees them and he sees you. Better than that, he doesn't just see you. As he comes to them, he comes to you. Okay, verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's somewhere between three and six in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, I don't know if they, uh, I don't know if they still do this, but when I was a kid, you know, there were those um, TV programs where there'd be some um, stuntman or some daredevil who tries to pull off some trick or some amazing stunt, and the presenters go, you know, boys and girls, don't try this at home. I can almost bet you that you have tried this trick at home, haven't you? I mean, how many of you have tried to walk on water? I do not think that any youth summer pool party is complete without somebody trying to walk on water. And how does it end? Every time. The result is always the same, isn't it? If death is the ultimate statistic and one out of one die, so is walking on water. One out of one sinks. 
which is why liberal theologians say, well, it can't have happened, can it? Okay, he must have been walking on a sandbar. Or, or this must have been an optical illusion. Actually, he was walking along the, the lakeside. Or maybe you are sat there thinking, yeah, or it probably didn't happen at all. Okay, if that is what you're thinking, then like the disciples, the message of the feeding of the 5,000 has not yet penetrated your heart. What it's trying to teach you hasn't yet sunk in. Like them, you haven't understood verse 52 about the loaves. Because who can do that with the loaves but God alone? You see, in the Old Testament, Job was a man who, just like these disciples, maybe just like you, knew all about the circumstances of life conspiring against him even though he had sought to live an obedient life, even though he had sought to be faithful to God. And in Job 9, Job says of God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Because who can walk on water? No one can walk on water. The only person who can walk on water is he who could feed a multitude in a wilderness. Okay, but look at these disciples struggling in the wind. And Jesus comes to them, and verse 48, he meant to pass them by. Does that not strike you as odd? He meant to pass them by? He meant to walk past them? They're in a storm, and Jesus goes past them? Why? Is he just leaving them to their fate? Hey, guys, see you on the other side. This one is down to you. You've got to struggle in your own strength. Is that what's going on? And the answer is no. In the Old Testament, there are these two great moments where people encounter God in his glory. First Moses and then Elijah. And they have these extraordinary encounters with God. In Exodus 33, Moses asks God to show him his glory. And the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And when God met with Elijah on Mount Horeb, we're told, and behold, the Lord passed by. And on both occasions, when the writer uses, well, our translations use the word Lord, it's God's covenant name, Yahweh. I am who I am. That's who passes by. So this isn't Jesus abandoning them to their fate. This isn't Jesus leaving them or you and me to struggle in our own strength. This is God in all of his goodness passing before them as he passed before Moses and Elijah. This is God proclaiming his name before them. And how does he do it? In the man, Jesus of Nazareth. It's why, verse 50, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, in Greek, ego eimi, I am. Do not be afraid. And he gets into the boat, in verse 51, the wind ceased. 
think about that. When is it that Jesus reveals who he is? It's in the midst of a storm, when the wind is against them, when they are discovering yet again their, their weakness, their inability, their frailty. And guys, so often it's the same with us as well, isn't it? It's in trials and in difficulties, when maybe we are learning unflattering things about ourselves. Maybe when we're struggling with a sin that we just can't break or, or, or a bad habit. When we're, when we're experiencing again our bad reactions in situations, when we are learning unflattering things about ourselves, it's then that we can learn great things about God. And so sometimes when we're praying, you know, God, please stop the wind. Maybe sometimes we should also be praying, God, teach me more about Jesus in this storm. Let him pass before me. Show me more of him. Because it's only in him that we will ever hear the words, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Because these guys don't get it, do they? They don't get that. And Mark tells us why, verse 52, their hearts were hardened. And so often when we are experiencing fear or frustration because of our circumstances, the problem is often not the circumstances, is it? Often it's our reaction. It's our hearts that's the problem. We're not seeing Jesus as he really is. So what can melt and soften hard hearts? Last point then. The humility of the king. Now, if you know Mark's gospel, okay, you know that his word immediately is one of Mark's favorite words. He keeps on using it. And yet, despite how often Mark uses it, in the context of Jesus having just fed thousands of people, okay, its use in verse 45 is striking, isn't it? Immediately, he made his disciples get in a boat and leave. He gives them no chance to, chance to savour the moment. And then, having dismissed the crowd himself, Jesus goes up a mountain and spends a whole night in prayer. Why? Why the urgency to get these disciples out of there as quickly as possible? And why then spend an entire night in prayer? Well, we've got four accounts of this, haven't we? And in John's account, John tells us why. It's that having been fed by Jesus, the people were about to come and take him by force and make him king. In other words, revolution and revolt are in the air. But Jesus hasn't come for that, has he? Not as they understand it, anyway. Jesus hasn't come to be another Herod. He hasn't come to be another leader, to take power and to use force. He has come to give up his life to save ours. And here he breaks bread and passes it to the disciples to feed the crowd at evening time. But another evening is coming, isn't it? When he will again take bread and break it. And again, he will pass it out to these same men, except this time he says, this is my body broken for you. And another night will come 
And in the dark of that coming night, Jesus will be in a garden. Okay, these disciples are on a lake, struggling and sweating, trying to make headway against the wind. But in this coming night, in the garden of Gethsemane, Christ will face the greatest struggle of all. As not just the wind on a lake, but the windstorm of hell bears down upon him. And in that struggle, he sweat drops of blood. And at his trial, the soldiers clothe him with purple. They crown him with thorns. They give him a reed for a scepter and they mock him before nailing him to a cross with Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, nailed above his head. Why? Because he is. Because that's who this king is. The king who gives his life for his people. The king whose body is broken to feed us. The king who endures the storm of God's wrath against our sin so that you and I can be brought safely to shore. And he does it all so that one day we might sit with him in the, at the greatest banquet table of all. You see, if God has a habit of taking the seemingly weak and insignificant, like barren and unloved women, and overlooked sons, and five loaves and two fish, and using them to bless others. Nowhere is that habit clearer than at the cross, at the seeming weakness and insignificance and defeat of the cross, where the saving power of God is poured out. But listen, the cross doesn't just show us Jesus' power, though it does. It shows us his character. You see here, it's when the disciples are being tested. It's when they're being tested with a crowd too large to feed or a wind too strong to master that they see something of who Jesus really is. But it's in Jesus' greatest trial. It's in his greatest test when not just a crowd, but the whole world is stood against him. When the storm of sin is bearing down upon him, that we see him as he really is. It's as we see him giving up everything for us who can bring him nothing and who deserve nothing. It's there that we see his love and his grace and his mercy. And it is beautiful. It's what the thief crucified next to him saw. It's what the centurion stood at his feet saw. And when you see it, when you see the one who can feed a multitude, and the one who can tread upon the waves, dying in your place, that's what can melt your hard heart. And as it does, you'll trust him. You'll trust him when all the odds seem against you, when you know that you cannot do this. You'll trust him in the storm, when it feels like everything is against you. You'll trust him that even though you are unable, he is more than able, able to take what little you have 
and multiply it and use it to bless and to do good to those whom he has put around you. Let's pray.